2: Welcome to South Talk Radio. I'm Neil Bradley. My co-host, Joe Quinn. Hi there. And this week, we're speaking with Eric Dreitzer. Eric is the founder of Stop Imperialism and the Land Destroyer Report. He's a regular contributor to Russia Today, Counterpunch, the Center for Research on Globalization, New Eastern Outlook, Press TV, and many other news outlets. Uh, Eric is a geopolitical analyst, and he's also hosted regular podcasts, the Reality Principle, which you can find on his website at StopImperialism.org. If you have any questions for Eric, do give us a call, or you can ju- uh, log into our chat room, leave any comments or questions you have for Eric, myself, or Joe. So with that out of the way, welcome to the show, Eric.
3: Uh, thank you both for having me on the program, and just a, just a point of clarification, I contribute material to Land Destroyer, but that is not my blog.
1: Okay.
2: Okay. Sorry for that.
1: Well, Landestroy is a great blog, so it's a good place to have your have your work. You know, they do a lot of good stuff.
3: That, absolutely, but everything else you said is accurate. And thank you again for having me on the show.
1: No worries. It's good to have you.
2: Well, um, Eric, there's there's so much going on, so many questions. I think if I was to ask you something first, I know for me, ever since this Ukraine situation blew up. It's been a real eye-opener because a lot of things have shifted in focus in how I kind of – I seem to understand more about a lot of the criticisms I would have had with Western hegemony and particularly American foreign policy in other countries around the world. So I guess we go straight into that issue. I mean – What's what's the situation in Ukraine like at the moment? They've just had elections. They've got a new president. Russia has agreed to cooperate with the new president. Um, Do you think? Well, I I should say first that at the same time, I mean, they're giving. They seem to be giving this dangerous situation every chance it can to back down, to destabilize, to rather to stabilize. But Putin, I think, is frank when he says the situation now is a civil war situation. Do do you think we're already there? And is there a way out of going down that road right now?
3: Well, uh, to answer your first question, um, it's it's a bit complicated. I mean, how exactly does one define a civil war? Is a civil war defined by violence, by uh, internal internal conflict? Uh, is a civil war uh, defined by ideologies? Is a civil war defined by geography and secession? I mean, these, these questions, I think, are uh, a, a bit philosophical. What we definitely have, though, is a violent struggle for the east of Ukraine. And particularly, you essentially can look at it as a government attempting to assert its physical and its political <laughs> (laughs) Uh, dominance and hegemony over a region that seems to have decided that it will reject the validity of this government because it came to power in an illegal fashion and against the democratic principles of that country's constitution. So it's, it's a bit complicated when we talk about a civil war, but it is definitely a civil conflict and it is definitely one that is escalating, and escalating particularly because of the actions of the government in Kiev. And what I mean by that is the deployment of military forces against these self-defense organizations in uh, the Donbass region, that is The Donetsk region and some of the surrounding areas in the east of the country. Um, It it, it should be noted, of course, also that uh, these regions are particularly uh, and markedly different from the west of Ukraine in terms of its economic uh, uh, geography. What I mean is, of course, that this is an industrial area. This is the industrial base of the country. And so when you're talking about a military force being deployed against these people and against these regions, you have a very critical economic and uh, uh, resource-based conflict brewing in Ukraine where where the West is an agricultural heartland but mostly underdeveloped and certainly uh, some of the poorest uh, concentrations of uh, working class and and peasant class people in the country are in the West while in the East, which is more closely associated with Russia, it is the industrial heartland of the country, the massive manufacturing base and most of the uh, The tax base comes from that region. So there are deep divides in Ukraine. And I think that the violence that is being unleashed by the current government uh, is an outgrowth of some of these contradictions, some of these distinctions, and some of the gaps that we see within uh, Ukrainian society. But all of these cracks within society have really only emerged and really come to the surface because of the meddling of the United States and the West in that country, because of a destabilization because of a regime change maneuver which has really escalated all of this and that's not even to speak of course of the conflict over Crimea and Crimea's return to the Russian Federation. So the entire situation really is continually evolving and really evolving by the hour, evolving by the day and I think that what our responsibility as journalists, as international observers is to really follow uh, the trajectory of this conflict and to really document what is actually happening as opposed of course, to what the Western media tells us is happening.
1: Yeah. um, Just on the, on the idea that Eastern Ukraine, uh, as in, you know, Donetsk, uh, Luhansk and uh, those areas that they would, that there's a movement, there's self-defense forces and a movement now to kind of break away uh, and maybe either federalize or join Russia. Uh, It seems to me that there must've been some kind of a latent kind of desire or movement Or you know, among the population in those regions, to kind of be part of Russia, because it seems to me that if those people were happy enough in Ukraine, or as happy as other Ukrainians, uh, you know, that kind of a a coup—okay, a coup in their country—is a bad thing for anybody. But there were elections coming up pretty quick, and you know, they have a right to vote. And uh, you know, I'm just thinking that there must have been something else there already. Uh, for them to take up arms in this way and try to, uh, declare independence because in a, in another country that wouldn't happen. Sure, everybody might not be happy with the coup, but they'd be waiting on the elections and they would get the right to vote and then they would vote in or vote for their people, right?
3: I think that you're correct, and I think that your observation is a is a keen one but i would I would also add though that um it is the way in which the government was toppled, and those who replaced that government I think that really fomented a lot of this activity uh certainly there was there, there, there is this uh this latent desire that you're referring to, and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that uh, the eastern portion of Ukraine is predominantly russian that is russian speaking ethnically Russian. You know whatever whatever terms we want to use, they're closely associated linguistically as well as, of course, uh, uh, culturally with Russia and and historically, uh, of course, I would add. So there is certainly that, and that's always uh, part of this equation. But I would say also that it is the nature of the government that took over in Kiev that really drove some of this into uh, you know put it into high gear, so to speak. And what I mean, of course, is the the rise of the neo Nazis, the rise of the fascists those who uh, worship at the altar of Stepan Bandera, the infamous Ukrainian uh, Nazi collaborator, these type of individuals who have historically had a presence in Ukraine and have had one there for you know for many generations, but for them to rise to positions of power and for them to uh, assume the role of what had been the role of the Yanukovych government, the democratically elected, but to be noted, of course, corrupt and, and utterly degenerate government led by Yanukovych, uh, being replaced by these Banderas, I think escalated a lot of this and it drove a lot of these regions, uh, particularly, uh, with the, with the accession of Crimea back into the Russian Federation, uh, I think these other regions said, well, it seems it seems likely that we're going to have to either go our own way or be granted a large degree of independence within some newly formed, newly constituted Ukraine. And I think that that was really the starting point, and it is from there that all of this has begun to devolve in the military attacks and all of the rest of it.
4: Mm.
1: Yeah, I, can, I, I totally agree that uh, the type of coup that happened and the people that were involved that were clearly kind of right-wing, kind of neo-Nazi type groups, as you said, that of uh, Bandera followers, and that definitely um, would have, I can, well, I can imagine that it would have uh, revived some kind of old ghosts because you have all of these essentially Russian, ethnic Russians, Russian-speaking people in eastern Ukraine who all, you know, there's people alive there still today who remember the Second World War and the sacrifices yes. that the Russians made against the Nazis and against Nazi Germany, and then to have you know kind of nazi sympathizers now in power in their government even if it's only an inter- interim government but the stage of coup would have really yeah uh, would have pushed some serious buttons um and and not just if people... I
3: should... i'm ahead. sorry i didn't mean to cut you off i just wanted to add because i think for a lot of us, uh, you know, in the, in the United States and in Western Europe, uh, World War II is is a, is a very uh, lo- seems like a very long time ago in our historical memory. Uh, but I would I would note for people who don't speak Russian who don't know this, uh, in Russia and among Russian speakers, they don't refer to it as World War II. They refer to it as the Great Patriotic War. It is seen as a war for the very survival of Russia, and it is you know to to bar- to borrow the sort of the cultural expression of the United States, you know it is the greatest generation they are they are revered as heroes of the country heroes of the of the, of the history of the country and protectors of russia and russian people so uh, world war 2 is not just a war for the russian people it is a historical sort of monument and uh, this is why they take so seriously uh, desecration of World War II monuments, why they take so seriously any whiff of fascism arising in Ukraine. And that's why you saw many of these regions immediately arm themselves and prepare for, prepare for some kind of a battle when they saw this government emerge.
2: Mm-hmm. Indeed. I mean, given that context, it's very understandable why there was such a sharp split come to the surface, so to speak. I mean, it's so pointed for the right sector types who took over Kiev to subsequently make a point of desecrating memorials to fallen heroes in the second world, war, or the great patriotic war from their point of view,
1: as a way of
2: really, you know, sticking the knife in Sticking the
1: knife in. Yeah.
3: That's right. That's exactly right. And I would, I would even remind people that, uh, the, the newly appointed representative Of the illegal government in Kiev To the United Nations What was his first point of order uh, Upon arriving at the United Nations It was to deny the charges of Nuremberg Of the Nuremberg trials And to describe uh, what, was, what was Conducted at Nuremberg As essentially a conspiracy uh, Led by the Soviets A bunch of Soviet lies So Holocaust denial Glorification of Nazism This is what you get from uh, some, and I would say some, not all, but some of mm-hmm. the most important elements of uh, the new government in Kiev. And of course, this is a government that is handpicked by the United States, by the West, as was revealed by the... Uh, the leaked recording of Victoria Newland speaking with U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine mm-hmm. Jeffrey Payet a few months ago, where they uh, not so not so uh, indiscreetly handpicked Yatsenyuk to be the new leader of the country for uh, Klitschko to be off to the side. And of course, that's exactly what happened. So we have a mountain of evidence that really places Ukraine in a larger historical continuum, in a larger historical context along with other color revolutions and destabilizations and regime change operations that the united states has carried out over the course of the last few decades and i think it is within that context that we can really begin to understand why ukraine matters geopolitically for both the west and for russia
1: well just on the point of uh, of u.s involvement as you said there's plenty of evidence to, to, to show that or suggest that the u.s definitely was involved in the in the coup uh, behind the scenes you know but um it kind of seems to me that they their plan went awry or they didn't fully understand the nature of the situation uh, because you know if they supported this kind of, the kind of coup that happened, they, they realized that there were these right-sector g- groups, the kind of neo-Nazi Banderists who were, who were involved in it, and they obviously didn't think ahead that this was going to provoke the kind of reaction from the Russians in eastern Ukraine and that that would start a movement to, to kind of break away and essentially could, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's very possible that's going to lead. The coup itself backed by the U.S. is going to lead to the breakup in some way or other of Ukraine and that's the last thing as far as I can see that's the last thing that the US wants and the and the Europeans want.
3: Well, uh to some degree I think that's true, but again, I uh I would I would say that um, the regime changers, you know, the color revolutionists and uh, those in the State Department and in U.S. intelligence that actually organize and execute these sorts of operations, uh, to some degree, they, they, they demonstrate uh, uh, hubris in the matter. That is, they, they feel that they can really manipulate to their own ends and uh, that they can manage the outcomes of these scenarios. But, of course, as you pointed out, uh, to a large degree, they can't, and oftentimes it is the, the, the Consequences of that I think often Falsely uh, described As unintended consequences That actually are intended Consequences that is a full Destabilization of a country A rearranging of the ruling class And concentration of power In the hands of certain individuals And certain factions that are Aligned with the interests of the United States and the West I think that that's Precisely what they did I think that's what they Intended to do and that's what they've done Repeatedly but yes you're absolutely right in the sense that uh, there's, a, there's a definite degree of miscalculation, and I think the miscalculation, and this is perhaps um, from my judgment here, but uh, the miscalculation comes from uh, misunderstanding of how uh, Russian President Putin would respond. See, the United mm-hmm. States has, has grown very accustomed to having its way in foreign policy, to having its way with smaller, weaker nations and being able to manipulate them. But of course, I think that they were taken very much by surprise by Putin's counterstroke in Crimea, for example. I don't think that the United States ever thought for a second that it would depose the government of Ukraine and that Russia would come in and take control of Crimea and consolidate its, its naval forces and its naval uh, foothold in the Black Sea. See, I think that it's that kind of a counter move that really throws a, a, a monkey wrench into the gears so to speak, for the United States regime change operation. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot, of these, a lot of these things that we're seeing in the east are outgrowths of that. As Crimea went, there you saw the rise of the self-defense forces in the east because, of course, as, as anyone could understand, if Crimea mm-hmm. is going to have a better future with Russia, why not us?
1: Yeah, so there were kind of the people in eastern Ukraine were emboldened by Putin's uh, move on Crimea. They saw Russian support. Yeah.
3: And I I think that that was a calculated move by Putin as well. I think that Putin understood that that would happen, and I think that that's part of the leverage that Russia is attempting to maintain going into whatever negotiations are likely going to be the outcome of all of this. If Russia wants to be able to manage the outcome of this situation to its liking, then Russia is going to need to have some kind of leverage, and having control over the forces in the East is precisely the leverage that Russia is going to use.
2: Yeah. This, this, um, this is more or less our analysis of it to date. Now, last week we had on uh, Rick who writes on NATO and um, U.S. military movements, and maneuvers and exercises around the world. He threw out another idea, though, that they may have had a kind of a calculation in reserve whereby they could have, won, they could have foreseen that Putin would do what he did in Crimea, and as a result
1: of that, the rest of Ukraine would be, quote-unquote, theirs. Yeah, well, specifically, just, let me just add that specifically, I think what he said, it was a, it was a, it was a level of uh, kind of strategizing that went mm-hmm. a bit further than the standard, which was that they were happy to have Putin take Crimea because one of the stipulations for joining NATO was that you have to have control, a country has to have control of its, of its territory, and with the Black Sea Fleet in Crimea, Ukraine did not have control of its territory and therefore could not join NATO. But with Crimea now part of Russia, Ukraine is now whole. It has control of its territory, supposedly, although it doesn't always with eastern Ukraine. And that is more likely to join NATO. But I think that was a bit, I think that was stretching the conspiracy theory a bit too far, you know.
3: Well, I, I'll just say this: I think Rick Rosoff is one of the most uh, knowledgeable people on all of these issues, probably anywhere in the world. So, I anything that Rick says, I would take very, very seriously. Now, that being said, uh, I don't know whether I don't know whether they have that level of strategic vision or not. You know, it really depends exactly who uh, is running these operations. Of course, if you follow these events closely, you see the utter incompetence and blundering that comes from people like yeah. John Kerry and 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 State mm-hmm. Department and others uh these people are not are, are are not you know quote unquote professionals when it comes to this sort of operation but certainly there are people within the intelligence community and within the military uh bureaucracy that do have that level of strategic vision and I wouldn't put it past them now that being said I I think um A historical perspective really informs this, uh, all of this, because really remember that Crimea is a region that has been fought over for multiple centuries by multiple empires for a vast uh, number of reasons, and all of them being strategic. Crimea is one of the most strategically important regions really anywhere in the Eurasian landmass. And uh, so... Uh, whether it was the Ottoman Empire attempting to control Crimea so that it could control the Black Sea trade routes, whether it was the Russian, the Russian Empire and the British Empire fighting a war over control of Crimea, I think Crimea has always been at the center of it. And I, and I don't think that... Uh, that the that the United States and the West would just concede Crimea entirely to Russia for the purposes of pulling Ukraine into NATO, yeah. unless, of course, they already had some kind of a backroom deal in place. But I don't necessarily see that as being the case. It's possible. I would I would leave the door open to that possibility. But I think what's more likely is that they thought that they could take a Kosovo-style operation and make it on a much larger scale in Ukraine, that is to say – create a vast nato colony out of ukraine and do it in a de facto way and the de facto way of course being that association agreement that they presented to ukraine in november which though it was an economic partnership agreement was also a military cooperation agreement as has been noted by a number of analysts who went through that thousand page document and so i think that if you want to put uh, um, Ukraine into that NATO context, we should think about it in the vast NATO context, like a Kosovo, like a Georgia, as opposed to necessarily seeing it as some kind of a uh, overarching uh, uh, backroom deal. Well,
1: what's the? I mean, you talked about Crimea being very, very strategically important uh, throughout the kind of past few centuries to various different empires. What is uh is it any different today in terms of its strategic importance to Russia in the modern world? What is it? I mean, it gives Russia access to the Mediterranean. Is that it?
3: Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, half of Russia's navy is in Crimea at, uh, at Sevastopol. It is the, the, the Russian Black Sea Fleet. This is what the Russian Empire fought that, the Crimean War for. Uh, control of Crimea, allowing Russia control. Uh, access to the Black Sea and access to the Mediterranean, which of course means military and uh, commercial, if, if need be, access to Europe uh... via you know via maritime trade routes that has always been historically important it was also historically very important as a crossroads a crossroads between east and west a trading and commercial center as well and particularly the city of odessa uh... which is not in crimea but which is also in ukraine south on the black sea coast also, very important for uh, you know for for all of these for all of these reasons, and so um, Crimea is really significant for that reason, and also remember, Russia does not have uh, tremendous warm water uh, military and naval power—that is to say, you know, the the Russian ports in the Far East are seasonal ports. The Russian ports in the north on the Baltic are not always necessarily reliable in the winter. So, what you're looking at is perhaps the most important naval outlet for Russian uh, military power and Russian power projection, and that's the way that it has always been.
1: Uh, Eric, we have a call on the line. I'm going to go ahead and take it here. Okay. Sure. Hi, caller. What's your name? where you calling from?
4: Hi, Joe. It's Clay from Indianapolis. How you guys doing
1: hey clay welcome, welcome. To the show. thanks what's your
2: comment uh, well
4: i i uh had a question. just want to get Eric's take on why he thinks the uh the Western media is painting Russia in such a bad light, you know specifically like uh Kerry's comments and things like that.
1: Did you get that, Eric?
3: Uh, Yeah, I did. Um, Well, I think that there's a number of reasons – in order to in order to be able to uh, whip up support for the Obama administration and for the U.S. policy in Ukraine, which undoubtedly just from uh, on a on a very instinctual level is not particularly popular among Americans, um, in order to do that they have to employ the, the the media apparatus, which is part and parcel of the imperial system, and uh, the media apparatus really operates uh, at least with regard to Russia on a uh, set you know, uh, uh, on a set of principles that go back to the Cold War. Uh, Russophobia is something that, although perhaps latent over the course of the last 20 years, certainly very much ingrained in the Social and cultural DNA of the United States, and in order to in order to uh, bolster the U.S. position and to shape public opinion in support of the U.S. position, they have to make Russia into the villain and make Putin into the reincarnation of Stalin or Hitler or whomever, to make Russia into the you know the reincarnation of the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union, and to play on these very old and very tired stereotypes, of course, completely leaving out for for, for the American public completely leaving out the fact that Russia and the United States have tremendous areas of cooperation, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of contracts between Russian and Western oil and gas companies, hundreds of billions of dollars in terms of uh, other forms of cooperation. So uh, uh, although the situation economically and politically and strategically is different than it was in the Cold War, the stereotypes are still there. The cultural residue of the Cold War is still there. And that's what the media machine is Using to demonize russia in this case of course the reason being and i guess this goes back to your initial question the reason being because the united states knows the shallowness and ineptness of its own policy and knows that its own policy in ukraine is not only morally but politically and diplomatically very difficult to legitimize and so they need to have public opinion on their side and the media is how they do it
4: wow so do you think it's totally intentional do you think that it's uh maybe they're just leaving some of the facts out i mean and and talk about uh maybe the people behind this i mean it's not the whole united states but there are certain uh, people in power whether it's in those in control of the media uh or policy makers um i guess who who do you think is really uh behind all that
3: mm-hmm. Well, it's a great question. I think that what you're getting at gets to the nature of mainstream media in the United States and its corporate power and corporate control that dominates it. I mean, I forget exactly. It's six corporations that own nearly every media outlet in the United States, at least every major media outlet. And these corporations are, for, for the most part, maybe with very few exceptions, they're on, the same, they're on the same page politically Because they take orders politically And they take orders from And again this goes into Whatever people's political affiliations Are determined how they uh, dis- Describe these things But I think it could be described as a ruling class A corporate oligarchy A corporate ruling class that controls The media machine just as it controls The political machine just as it controls The financial machine And it is this ruling class that sees A conflict with Russia and a conflict with the East as really the defining uh, issue, the defining um, struggle of the 21st century, at least of the first half of the 21st century. And, you know, these are people to a large extent, they have an imperialist mindset. They come from an imperialist tradition. They are the inheritors. Of an imperial uh, order and they see their role in the world as being those who are guardians of US Anglo-American, whatever you want to call it, western imperial hegemony and they see the rise of Russia and the rise of China and the rise of India and of Brazil and of these other centers of power as uh, the number one threat to their own hegemony. I believe it was Plato who said that the only function of oligarchy is to, pr- is to maintain and further the oligarchy and i think that that is really what we're looking at and the media is a is a central piece of all of that and i think that what you're what you're touching on is the most important point they see putin as the number one threat against their hegemony in the world today <laughs>
4: okay yeah thank you i i totally agree with that in order to uh have <laughs> control of the commoners i mean they have to have a common enemy that they can uh Point at and uh, and then surrender their will to you know uh, mm-hmm. like surrender, surrendering their will to the government to the media that kind and, of thing and so.
3: i would also I would also add that their terrorism al qaeda narrative is being further discredited every every day every month and every year uh <laughs> right, the war on yep. the war on terror is a mostly debunked concept, and I think that uh, to a large extent. Ru- big bad Russia, the Russian bear, and Big bad Vlad Putin uh, makes for a very, very good bogeyman.
4: Certainly, mm. certainly, and it's uh, something that's um, more concise instead of the uh, the hidden um, uh, Al Qaeda camps and whatnot. Yeah, certainly, the the giant Russian bear. Yeah, mm. very good. Okay, well, thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. All
1: right, Clay. Thanks for calling. Thank
4: you, son. All right, bye bye. All
1: right. Um, so, Eric, you're saying that uh, it's not about freedom and democracy. <laughs> you're talking about um, <laughs> global hegem- hegemony, uh, but it's global hegemony of freedom and democracy, right?
3: Yeah. Right. Well, you know, uh, that's
1: what the democracy- they want to spread.
3: If democracy was something that the that the United States had been spreading, then uh, I think you wouldn't. Uh, I think you wouldn't see the situation of the Native American population that you see today. Hmm.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, well, uh, the United on a States point, has never. What- the,
3: I'm sorry. I just wanted to say the United States has never been interested in spreading freedom and democracy. If the United States was interested in that, the United States wouldn't be an imperial power. Yeah,
1: yeah, they wouldn't have uh, bases in about eighty percent of the countries around the world. But you know, they have they have they have a narrative that explains that, and I don't know if they believe it or not. But I mean, just on on the Ukraine situation, what what is the reason? Then? I mean, you talk about global kind of hegemony, but what uh, what are the specifics of what do they get out of it? Is it just naked greed?
3: Well, I think that there's there there are many there are many factors I think that go into this sort of the strategic calculus of Ukraine. I think one of the one of the primary ones has been a, a longstanding policy now from uh, about twenty five years of NATO's eastward expansion and NATO's eastward expansion being really uh sort of a, 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 a tool by which they isolate, alienate, dominate, and uh, control Russia. And that has always been the case. And we can go back to the late 1980s and the uh, unwritten agreement between George H.W. Uh, Bush and uh, Mikhail Gorbachev when they um, when the Soviet Union decided to concede the end of the Berlin Wall and the reunification of Germany. Gorbachev had, had, had you know, sought assurances from the United States that NATO would not expand eastward That it would not consume the Baltic states That it would not move towards The borders of Russia which of course uh, Although the United States agreed to that In principle that's precisely what Has happened and I think that the Eastward expansion of NATO on the One hand shows the sort of the Imperial hubris of The of the United States and of the West The idea that they could just keep moving Further and further eastward and that there Would never be any repercussions For them of course in the 19 90s, the absorption of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, the uh, bringing in of Poland into the NATO sphere of influence, and then, of course, later, uh, the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, Kosovo, the former Yugoslav uh, uh, territory of Kosovo and so forth, bringing all of these territories into NATO filled these people with a sense of invincibility, and I think that Ukraine was really the next step in this larger uh, process that they saw as essentially their sort of uh, long and drawn out soft power march towards Russia, and uh, I think that Putin really in many ways embodies a, a reaction against all of this. See, what Putin embodies for 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 the majority of the people in russia if if you look at his approval ratings they're sky high at the moment what he embodies is a resurgence of russian power on the world stage that russia is not a weak country to be pushed around by the united states the way that it was in the immediate aftermath of the soviet union and throughout the 1990s and so putin really represents national pride now whether you like or dislike that and whether you like or dislike putin that is what he represents for the russian people and what that translates to in terms of geopolitics is standing up to nato it is protecting russian protecting Russian-speaking people against NATO aggression. And that is how the Russians have really framed all of this. So, of course, uh, you know, the, the, the geopolitical angle, the strategic angle, uh, trying to uh, originally pry part of the Russian navy away from Russia that is controlling Crimea, but it's certainly much, much larger than that. Ukraine is home to some of Europe's most fertile and productive agricultural land anywhere on the European uh, continent and of course countries like Monsanto and ConAgra and other major big agri businesses of the western world they want to get their fangs into the Ukrainian heartland as well and actually they're already doing it now that they have their people in power of course also Ukraine is vital to Russia's gas delivery infrastructure to Europe uh, something like 80% of Russia's gas that goes to Europe today goes through Ukrainian pipelines now those Ukrainian pipelines are not controlled by russia as they are in belarus they're controlled by ukraine so it is partially a means of leveraging russia in terms of its energy delivery which is a major part of their gdp and so and mm-hmm. i mean the list goes on and on i could name at least 10 other economic factors that are vital to all of this the the untapped uh, uh, shale gas potential in ukraine is significant of course uh, chevron and bp and the other corporate want to get in on the fracking game in Ukraine just as they have all over uh, the West as well and so uh, there are many many reasons for it of course when you see an operation of this size there are always overlapping interests and interests within interests and factions within factions that want to get their peace
1: okay so what's the problem with if you were if you had to explain to somebody say in the US or Western Europe what the problem is with NATO why countries in in NATO member countries, like on the expansion of NATO, for the people on the ground, what's what's the drawback? What's the negative? Why is that a, a problem?
3: Well, I would I would start that conversation by asking, what is NATO for? I mean, mm-hmm. if, if If people could, if people could provide a very good answer as to what NATO is for, then maybe you could begin a debate about whether or not NATO is a good thing or not. Because NATO was established as a means of checking, well, at least this is how they sort of, uh, Sell the idea of NATO as a means of checking uh, the 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 communist east, uh, the Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union in the aftermath of, of World War II. That NATO mm-hmm. was really the, the power projection and the collective defense of western europe against soviet aggression that is the function of nato at least in the in the nato charter going back to the late 1940s so if that if that power block of the east doesn't exist then why exactly do we still have a nato and then you get into the nuances of what exactly nato does and how exactly nato operates why is turkey a part of nato what is the role of a country like turkey in a in a security alliance that is supposed about the Atlantic security space. So you begin to get into very mm-hmm. uh, very real questions about what NATO is, and then you start to get, I think, to the fundamental point that NATO is really a euphemism for Western imperial system. That is an mm-hmm. empire that is not specific to one nation, but an empire that is controlled by Western capital. Western capitalism and Western capital, NATO is the military arm. It is the mm-hmm. enforcement arm of western capital and the western system
1: mm-hmm. yeah well i mean most recently what we saw happening under the aegis of uh, nato was uh was the bombing of uh, libya and uh it's pretty clear that that was for essentially you know uh, just for gain uh um uh for the uh Essentially, for the for the big business, the big international multinational businesses in our corporations in the U.S., particularly oil. Um, so, I mean, they, they used the. You know that there's an ulterior motive when you hear the uh, the tired old uh, accusation of he was attacking his own people. You know, I mean, five or six years ago, Gaddafi was fated in Paris and uh, with Sarkozy and stuff. He was. It was fine. There was no problem. I mean, he'd been in power for like forty years or thirty-five years at that point. But within five years, suddenly the guys turned around and he started to kill his own people, type thing. I mean, that whole thing was trumped up, to use a, a phrase, but of uh, uh, that Obama used or Kerry used recently. Um, so, I mean, for me, that's an example of what NATO does. It unjustifiably kind of it, it sequesters or uses uh, uh, other countries uh in europe in particular um to to justify to provide a a veneer of justification or legitimacy to uh, an attack on another country uh where, where that has some resources that are needed or wanted by the west
3: oh that's absolutely right and i think libya is a is a perfect example of exactly what i was just describing and and in fact uh it, it's you know it's a good example for a number of reasons because Uh, Everything that you mentioned is true in terms of the corporate interests, in terms of the economic, the financial uh, interests uh, that wanted to get their their claws onto the Libyan state, but there's also very real political and geopolitical strategic reasons for it. It's a, uh, it's a base from which to destabilize all of North Africa, which is exactly what has happened since then. I mean, the conflict in Mali, the conflict in Nigeria, the conflict in Chad, uh, these things are really outgrowths of the violence and the overthrow of Gaddafi uh, and the spreading of that conflict all through the region in Algeria, of course, the, the, the terror attacks in Algeria as well. And so they're, uh, although they're, they're, are- very powerful interests that wanted to enrich themselves in Libya. There were also uh, intelligence interests and military interests that wanted to see Libya become a base of destabilization for all of North Africa that would allow for the spread of AFRICOM, and of course AFRICOM being the United States military power projection throughout the African continent, and that's exactly what you've seen. You've seen the proliferation of AFRICOM in places like Mali, in places like Uh, Nigeria and elsewhere because of what happened in Libya so uh, from the perspective of the imperial thinkers uh, it's a win-win not only do we get to enrich our corporate friends we get to put our military guys in place and of course the the larger context being uh, as a means of checking China and China's incredible power and influence in Africa through its investments
1: yeah so I suppose what it comes down to is it's kind of a moral question in the sense that if you're trying to convince anybody that NATO's not so good, that it's not something that should be supported or should be allowed to spread and stuff, it essentially is a moral question in that, okay, you know, people in Western Europe and in the U.S. and stuff, you know, NATO's no threat to them. But it's what NATO's doing around the world and whether you have any kind of empathy or, you know, concern for the suffering of other people in other countries at the hands of NATO.
3: That I I would agree entirely. I think that when it comes to questions of war and peace, ultimately it's always a moral question. It's always a question of morality, a question of ethics and, and, and a question of um you know uh of uh, sort of political uh, idealism and I think that that's how it needs to be thought of but also you know when it comes to this you get people who who want to present you with a purely Machiavellian argument well you know you need NATO because you never know when you know Russia will rise and, and seek to destroy you know western capitalism or whatever it is they might say and uh, other than this being utter nonsense I think it, it betrays essentially a, a complete misunderstanding of how the world works today and the place of of uh, Russia and China within the the, the the global system. And I think that is why you see uh, the power centers of the West so particularly perturbed by Russia and China signing this massive gas cooperation deal and all the mm-hmm. other cooperation deals that are emerging between Russia and China, precisely because what we talked about earlier, a Western hegemony, a hegemony that had become sort of the norm by which the, all of these people understood how the world works, that hegemony has fallen away. The global order is changing dramatically, and it is becoming a multipolar global order, and a multipolar world is something vastly different from what all of us have grown accustomed to over the last 20 years, and oftentimes it is the policy makers and the, uh, the strategic thinkers and planners in Washington and in the West who are going to be the absolute last people to see that that is the new reality.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet. It seems, to, it seems to be the case already. You know, um, Eric, we have another call online here. Hi, Carl. what's your name where you calling from?
4: Hello, Charles from
5: Missoula, Montana.
1: Hey, Charles welcome to the show
5: uh, thank you hey uh i I kind of you're kind of going in the direction that uh I'd hoped you'd go because uh, a lot of the stuff you've been carrying uh at least in uh, in my case uh, has been stuff that's been covered in the news and uh, we're all uh a lot of us are on top of that stuff already <laughs> but uh kind of just a little bit of a comment of what you said earlier is, uh, on. Uh, to me it's pretty clear uh, from the, the rabbit holes I've gone down over the years that it is this one world government thing or one corporation they want to get rid of nationalities they want to get rid of democracy they just want to run the show and you look into the Council on Foreign Relations you look in the Bilderbergers working on the, uh, the uh, European Union back in the 50s uh, the roundtable group; these organizations. It's pretty much a one government, and nobody's out of the club. You know, you're under our thumb, and we call the shots. And it seems like that's just been been going on. Uh, and, and the other point is is that Russia originally, the Bolshevik Revolution was uh, funded by Wall Street. So sometimes there's this thing in the back of my head is like, what is this scenario that out is playing out? Is it really what's going on, or is even the the uh, opposed the supposed enemy part of the part of the game, part of the the stage, part of the show, and they they know what the outcome is going to be, you know? And that's what I wonder about Russia and China. Even it, you know, it's like, are they on this inside group that they know down the down the line? Everyone's going to be on board anyways. And then you look at, you know, whether it's NATO. Uh, I mean, NATO basically is selling guns for the corporations that build guns and weapons and all that. I mean, if they can create a conflict, uh, they have a twofold thing. I think one thing is this one one total control of the whole planet under one, you know, uh, uh, head. Uh, of a corporate head. And the other aspect is, hey, if we can create a conflict, go in create these artificial civil wars, then we can sell guns to both sides. So that mm-hmm. kind of stuff's going on. But really what I w- my question was, or, or where I wanted to kind of throw a ball into the conversation was, I'm wondering, I'd like to pick you guys' brains of where you think this is going, because clearly the Russia-China thing is going on. Maybe they're really out of this, Corporate one world government total the company controlling everything and a few elites running the show and the rest are all serfs you know or maybe there really is a geopolitical uh, shift where there's going to be a whole new thing with Russia and China Mm. that's kind of the question okay I'll take I'll listen off air
1: okay thanks Charles thanks Charles thanks folks. uh Eric, yeah. i suppose that's uh, the question there is uh you know is it is there some level of charade going on here uh, that the, the leaders in russia and china are just uh you know they're kind of play acting to some extent and that ultimately there's someone above them or something
3: well i think that there's actually uh probably a number of questions <clears throat> sort of embedded in that uh first and foremost i would say that um i do i do not believe that uh Putin and the Russian government are, are on the same page with or in cahoots with Western interests on the on the larger scale and I think that Bilderberg is a good, is, is a good place to start take a, take a look and I mean do a real analysis of the attendee list at Bilderberg this year or even in recent years and look and see how many Russians are actually on that list and then do your research and follow exactly who those Russian individuals are almost exclusively the only Russian that you ever see at Bilderberg are uh, Russian uh, oligarchs and or Russian uh, cultural uh, sort of Western cultural icons like a Garry Kasparov, the famous chess champion and leader of the anti-Putin opposition. So what you find is that the Russians generally that are at Bilderberg, that are at these type of summits, they're the anti-Putin Russians. So the Putin power block is something that is absolutely outside of the power structure that uh, the caller is referring to. And and again, I think that, again, we get into this question of terminology. The one world government thing, uh, I, I I don't, I don't generally use that term because I think it's much more nuanced than that. I like, I like to call it an imperial ruling class because there are factions within the class and factions within that faction. For example, the neocons are certainly not the same thing as Brzezinski and the Brzezinskiites. They have, in many ways, different worldviews, although they are equally imperialistic. They have slightly different interpretations of how that uh, should be carried out. But I think that the call is touching on the, uh, on the important point and that is that is that it is it has a corporate character to it and that the notion that nations become subordinated to corporate interests and to corporate control, that is absolutely, I mean, 100% the case. And I think a prime example of that would be the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Look at the actual details of what the Trans-Pacific Partnership will put into place. It will sanctify the, uh, the rights of multinational corporations above and beyond the rights of individuals Individual nations that are party to that agreement, and I think that in the and the, uh, the transatlantic partnership is actually in many ways even worse. And the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and taken in total, what you see then is an economic framework for what the caller is describing, this sort of a, 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 a corporate-controlled, a pseudo entity that is a corporate entity controlling commerce, international commerce, and of course, thereby controlling international politics. Now, uh, I think, of course, it's very important to remember that the Trans-Pacific Partnership, China is not a part of it. Of course, uh, Japan and 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 the Philippines and Malaysia and uh, many of the other countries in the region, all part of Trans-Pacific Partnership, China excluded. What does that tell you about what that policy and what that framework and what that worldview says about how they view China? China is the regional enemy. China is the rising power, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership is intended to isolate it in the same way that Russia is – they're attempting to isolate Russia. Through these various things, and so um, I would not say that it's all a charade. I think that there are elements of that, but I would say that what we're looking at is a global struggle, or, or really a struggle for power and influence on a global scale. And the reason why you see such vicious. Uh, Anti-Russia sentiment in the media is precisely because Russia is an obstacle to consolidating mm. that power, an obstacle in Eastern Europe, an obstacle in Syria, an obstacle in Venezuela, an obstacle in many places where the United States is attempting to assert itself. The same with China. You see China as an obstacle to U.S. interests in Southeast Asia. China as an obstacle to U.S. interests in Syria. So this is how the conflict is shaping up. It is won over hegemony in the 21st century and whether or not there's going to be a continuation of U.S. dominance or whether we'll, we'll actually begin to see some kind of a true balance of power. And this is really what I'm most interested in as an American and as somebody who's interested in peace. I want to see a balance of power in the world so that my country doesn't get to go around everywhere it wants killing whomever it wants toppling whatever governments it wants whenever it wants
1: absolutely well said said. Um, I yeah I mean on that point I kind of think of uh, competition isn't I mean for all the capitalists in the West and the West in the US and Western Europe isn't the essence of capitalism uh, uh, competition I mean, it's healthy for capitalism to have competition. You can't have monopolies, right? So because uh, it's not good for business, it's not good for the country, it's not good for the economy. You need, you need competition, healthy competition. And here Russia is providing some healthy competition to uh, the U.S. monopoly. Why does any capitalist in the West have a problem with that?
3: That's right, and, and, and uh, don't get me wrong, I'm certainly not holding up Russia as, uh, as uh, the beacon of anti-capitalism. They're just as capitalist as anybody else, the Chinese Absolutely, being yeah. just as capitalist as anybody else. This is the absurdity of the, of the conflict that we're seeing erupting now, it's, and this mm-hmm. is what Putin has stressed repeatedly. Why are they, meaning the United States, why are they perpetuating this conflict? Don't they know that we have a global economic system where everybody is interconnected, where our mm-hmm. prosperity is connected? to their prosperity now this is partially political posturing on his part i don't think it's quite so simple but i think the, the 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 gist of his idea is true there is a global capitalist system and russia is a very big part of the global capitalist system china is an, is a far bigger part of that global capitalist system mm-hmm. so with and again i mean we could talk about how to struggle against capitalism but just even no, within that's... the framework of even within the framework of capitalism it's an absurd policy that the united states is following
1: yeah we uh eric we have one more call here uh i think i'm going to go to it no. oh, oops hi uh, no. uh, uh oh, we have someone on the line hi caller what's your name yes. where are you calling from
6: hi my name is Zoe. i'm calling from belarus
1: from belarus belarus okay. welcome yeah <laughs> it's a topical place to be yeah your... yeah
6: ukraine is my neighbor so <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's pretty close to heart the whole issue mm-hmm Okay, so uh, since Belarus is Ukraine's neighbor, uh, everyone here have been following, uh, you know, whatever's happened in Ukraine uh, rather closely. And uh, amazingly, the situation here is very stable and quiet, except for several isolated cases near the Ukrainian border, you know, when people tried to cross it and they were robbed and everything. Mm-hmm. But the quiet is obviously also due to several steps that Putin took like, for example, uh, placing several of Russia's fighters in Baranovich military base near the border with Poland. Another step that was taken recently was the Eurasian Economic Union between Belarus, Russia, and uh, Kazakhstan. And uh, in my opinion, it's a very significant step because it basically opens borders between three countries and creates a single (laughs) economical market of 170 million people. And uh, for example, my teacher in economics says that the span of this union can be compared to NAFTA and European Union, so I think it's uh, one of the steps that Putin takes uh, uh, to counter u uh, s influence economic influence, and whatever Eric was saying before mm-hmm. uh, I, yeah
3: okay. yeah, I think that got- that's absolutely correct, I actually. Uh, Thank you very much for bringing up the Eurasian Economic Union issue because I have a major article coming out probably uh, tomorrow or Tuesday on various subjects, so uh, look for that. Uh, But yes, exactly right. The Eurasian Economic Union, this partnership between Russia, Kazakhstan, and Belarus is, is, uh, is of great significance, and it's of great significance to Belarus and to Russia and to Kazakhstan, but it is also of tremendous significance to China because, remember, that China is also pursuing this new silk road strategy, which essentially creates a trade zone stretching from Western China all the way through uh, to Turkey and then into the European market. And uh, the, the Eurasian Economic Union, that is to say, the region through which it'll have to travel through Kazakhstan and into the Western portion of Asia, that is going to be critical for the Chinese policy. And so now, if they have close relations with Russia and then through, by extension, through the uh, Eurasian Economic Union, it moves Russia and China even closer to a strategic and an economic and possibly even a military alliance. And now, now you're talking about a fundamental change in global politics. And I would also add for the uh, Belarusian uh, uh, column there, Belarus has a lot of interest in all of this because Belarus, aside from being, uh, its, its pipelines being 100% owned by Russia's Gazprom, Belarus has major export interests into the Russian market, in particular with heavy machinery, tractors and construction equipment and things like that. For Belarus to survive, given its, uh, uh you know it's its geographical position and its relations with its neighbors for Belarus to survive anything that improves trade relations with Russia is tremendously significant for them Kazakhstan, on the other hand, is a, is a little bit more of a complex case, because Kazakhstan, unlike Belarus, is thoroughly uh, uh, infiltrated by Western corporate interests. You have the American Chamber of Commerce, very, very significant and influential in Kazakhstan. You have the World Bank being the uh, fundamental uh, guiding principle behind Nazarbayev University in the new capital of Astana. So uh, Kazakhstan is going to become a battleground for influence, and it's one of those particular countries that I would watch very closely for the next round of destabilizations because the United States will want to do anything it can to prevent Kazakhstan from turning towards Russia and China and turning away from the United States. Uh, uh, is that it, Oh
6: Well, I, I have another question, if Okay, possible. okay. Uh, sure. My question is what do you know about involvement of other countries uh, in the conflict like for example Israel uh, specifically Mossad's role in in, in uh, Ukraine. surface. yes okay
3: well we have um, we have we have reports of uh, certain certain um, uh, Mossad operatives and and other Israeli figures who have been involved there there's the reputed uh, re- reported um, or I guess we should say alleged accounts of uh, Israeli Special Forces veteran being one of the leaders of one of the death squads in Ukraine. I think that as time goes on and more uh, information comes out, I think it is Quite likely that uh, Israeli Mossad operatives were involved. Of course, we know that Greystone Limited, the Blackwater group, is very much involved in there as well. Um, I know that we have reports that some of the snipers in Kiev at Maidan might well have either been Israeli or Israeli-trained or Israeli-equipped. And, uh, of course, the Israelis are notorious for exporting this sort of um Special Forces type of, you know, quasi, I don't know what you call them, security specialist contractors and so forth. So uh, I, I think it would be, uh, it, it's not much of a stretch to believe that the Israelis were involved, nor is it a stretch to believe that U.S. mercenaries were involved.
6: Okay, well, uh, thank you very much.
1: All right. So stay safe and uh, thanks for the call.
6: Yeah. Bye-bye.
2: On Israeli involvement, I mean, where do they stand in this? Did you notice that when it came to the UN vote on, I think, the first reprimand or something for, for, uh, towards Russia regarding its, quote-unquote, annexation of, Ukraine, of Crimea, the Israelis managed to not be present for the UN vote?
4: Yeah, remember this, he, this was he...
2: back in March.
4: The Israeli
3: the, the Israeli position in all of this has been quite interesting. Um, you know they have significant relations with Russia and also I think in many ways more significant relations with China. In particular, China is uh, deeply deeply involved in plans that Israel has for developing high speed rail for cargo uh, all along through Israel to connect the Sinai Peninsula. And this is seen uh, as part of the larger Israeli move towards developing the offshore gas deposits that have recently been discovered. So uh, I think that Israel had certain interests in, 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 in not seeing um – not seeing themselves um, aligned against China and against Russia. But I also think that Israel has a very real interest in seeing the situation deteriorate in Ukraine further. Um, Remember that Israel has a a significant uh, demographics problem. Uh, That country, in order for it to maintain its sort of Jewish supremacist character, that is to say with with Jews in the dominant position and, and Palestinians and Arabs being uh, subordinated to Jews, they have to maintain a Jewish ethnic majority, and the way that they see the future as maintaining that is by importing whatever remains of Eastern European Jewelry. And there are still about one percent of Ukraine's population is Jewish. So, if you saw the rise of a neo-Nazi type government with openly anti-Semitic policies, you could then very easily and very quickly see a, a new mass migration of Jews out of Ukraine and in to Israel, which would, of course, bolster the Eastern European, and I would, and I would stress white character of Israel, uh, which is, of course, a deeply racist and apartheid society as it is. And so mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting that you have Jewish oligarchs like Kolomoisky, in Ukraine, who are now part of a new Ukrainian ruling class, aligning themselves with Nazis in the interests, in this case, uh, demographically speaking at least, of Israel – uh, at least from the perspective of possible immigration. So, there's, mm-hmm. as as you often see with this sort of <clears throat> these sort of conflicts, very bizarre and strange bedfellows begin to emerge. Yeah. Although knowing what we know about the character of the regime in Israel, perhaps aligning with Nazis is not so out of character.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's got. I mean, you realize that um, the kind of ideologies that that people hold to, the little people we hold to, and for whatever moral position, uh, they're very. Uh, you know, they're not so fixed for the people in power. They'll, kinda, they'll change with the wind very often. And like you just said, uh, Jewish oligarchs in Ukraine supporting kind of neo-Nazi Nazi groups. Uh, yeah. Back in
2: 2011,
1: Hillary Clinton
2: said something that, in retrospect, was very, very pertinent to what's going on now. Let's have a listen. Okay, we've got a little clip here. I'm going to listen to it.
0: Al Jazeera is winning the chinese have opened up a global english language and multi-language television network the russians have opened up an english language network i've seen it in a few countries and it's quite uh, instructive during the cold war we did a great job in getting america's message out after the berlin wall fell we said okay fine enough of that you know we've done it we're done um, and unfortunately we are paying a big price for it and our, our private media cannot fill that gap. In fact, our private media, particularly cultural programming, often works at counter purposes to what we truly are as Americans and what our values are. I remember having an Afghan general tell me that uh, the only thing he thought about Americans is that all the men wrestled and the women walked around in bikinis because the only TV uh-huh. he ever saw was Baywatch and worldwide Wrestling.
1: Is there more to that in American TV? <laughs> what do you, what's your take on that, Derek? What's he on about?
3: Well, what what she was really talking about then and what they're even more talking about today is the, and I know I've said the word a few times today, but it is the loss of U.S. hegemony in the information sphere uh, for Mm. decades, and it's exactly what she referred to. During, throughout the period of the Cold War, the United States uh, maintained near total hegemony over the information sphere in the West, and you see that through various organs, whether it's from uh, state-funded propaganda like, you know, the BBC or PBS in the U S or the CBC in Canada or whatever, which is oftentimes good, oftentimes can provide good reporting, but which is always ultimately aligned with the political interests of the ruling establishment. Uh, whether it's that or whether it's direct, uh, uh state and intelligence propaganda like voice of America or radio free Europe or all of these types of outlets. These were the outlets that put out the U S intelligence talking points in the, uh, uh, anti-Soviet propaganda throughout the Cold War. And after the Cold War, the United States, seeing, you know, as Francis Fukuyama famously said, the end of history, being that the United States won the ultimate struggle for history, it seemed that uh, the United States should naturally maintain hegemony over news, over information, over how information is disseminated. And you've seen that all throughout Eastern Europe um, you know, the the use of the NGO networks and all of the rest of that has all put out this sort of Western European and United States message about Global leadership about uh, you know about civic responsibility and all of the rest of these things for the purposes of putting out the U.S. message and the U.S. worldview. And what you're now beginning to see is that corporate media, as well as state-funded media in the West, now has challengers uh, in uh, outlets like CCTV, like RT, like Press TV, Al Jazeera, even although to a much lesser extent, and I have severe problems with Al Jazeera, but mm-hmm. even Al Jazeera fits into that category in some sense Uh, this is now in many ways providing a counter narrative to the Western media narrative and by providing that counter narrative people are actually allowed a glimpse into a worldview that does not 100 percent conform to the u.s western establishment worldview and the uh the functionaries of the ruling class are terrified of that this is why you've seen attack after attack after attack upon rt since the conflict in ukraine has begun because rt provides a very different perspective on the conflict a very different perspective on russia and on russia's place in the world and of course the united states is terrified of that because people particularly of my generation people who are uh who came of age politically in the 9/11 and Iraq war period uh those people in that age group are more and more turning to outlets like RT because they have simply turned away from the mainstream media because of lie after lie after lie war after war after war
1: absolutely very well said again, Eric. Uh, we're kind of running out of time here, so we'll probably leave it there. I just want to say thank you very much for for being on the show. It's been great. You're uh, you've been a super guest. Thank you've been you, a super Eric. Super guest, uh, full of lots of uh, pertinent and interesting information. Bye. Thank
3: you very much. Thank you very much for having me. I really, I really appreciate it. And. Uh, People can check out my website, stopimperialism.org. You can follow me on Facebook, on Twitter, at Stop Imperialism, and uh, my regular contributions at RT, Counterpunch, Press TV, and various other sites.
1: Okay, more power to you. Thanks, Eric.
3: Thanks for having me. Take care.
1: You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks. Uh, much to... Uh, your collective dismay, I'm sure. We are having a shorter show this week than we usually do for reasons that must remain unspoken. Uh, but um, Half <laughs> secret. Half secret. But we will be, be back next week, uh, as usual, at the same time, uh, same place. Uh, and our guest... Next oh, you'll week
2: enjoy next week's is... show. Next week, we're going to have another awesome journalist and political analyst on. Pepe Escobar.
1: Pepe Escobar. You probably know who he is. If you don't check him out, he's uh, he's a great guy, and he's lots of fun as well. He's one of those uh, rare kind of uh, political analysts who mixes in lots of uh, dry wit and, and humor into his uh, into his uh, analyses. So uh, that's one to, to definitely check out next Sunday at the same time. So, uh Until then, uh, thanks to our callers, thanks to Eric, and thanks to our chatters in our chat room who have been having the usual fun. We will be back next week, as we said. Until then, have a good one. Bye-bye.